Are you ready for another round? Welcome back to Rand's Rant and today I'm joined by Valerie Freeland who is a professor at the University of Nevada. Valerie also wrote the book titled Like Literally Dude which was published this year and the book explores our speech habits, language and everything in between. So Valerie thank you so much for coming on and taking time out of your day to chat about your book and your life's work but first and foremost how is everything with you? It's good. Yeah, life is moving along. Good stuff, good stuff. So I do tend to start from the beginning, which is childhood and the experience that come with that. And for instance, when you think back when you were growing up as a maybe a baby, toddler, teenager, whatever period of time that sticks out, like what sort of society and family situation did you live in and kind of grow up in? Sure. I uh, grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, but my parents are actually not American. My father is Belgian and my mother's French-Canadian, so their first language is French for both of them. So language was always very uh, an awareness that I had because my parents didn't speak English natively, and, and especially in Memphis, Tennessee, which for those that are not from the United States, it's in the South. In the United States South, it obviously has a very different culture than many other places. And um, I think it's sort of indelible in the American imagination what the South is like. And it's sort of um, more rural, a little more country, a little friendlier, but also has a very fierce sense of community. And so we were outsiders. You know, my parents were not very welcomed into the Southern community because they weren't from there. They hadn't grown up. And usually people in the South like to trace their ancestry back to, you know, Robert E. Lee. <laughs> and so yeah. uh, I, I noticed that right away because people always commented on their accents. Um, and it really annoyed me as a kid. What I remember is being very annoyed at my parents for having accents, you know, because it made us different. And when you're a kid, you don't want to be different. And I really wanted to be part of that community. But I also think it made them interesting and exotic and, um, having better life experience, you know, in, in other ways, I was able to recognize that it, it, they had these accents because they had done a lot up to that point. And my father actually was a Holocaust survivor. And he was okay. sent to Israel when he was um, about, I think, 10 or 11 to a kibbutz there for children that had been orphaned during the war. And so he also spoke Hebrew and Yiddish. And then he ended up emigrating into to Montreal, which is where he met my mother. But, you know, my parents had had so much life experience and it was represented through language because my father's experiences, every place he went, he learned a new language, he learned a new culture, he learned new things. And I always found that fascinating. So I think that piqued my interest in language very early on. Although, of course, as a teenager, I would have never thought I want to be a linguist because boring, right? That's totally not what I wanted to be an astronaut or something cool. But when I went to college and I took some linguistics courses uh, because I had to, it was part of my major and I had, it was required, which is why most college students end up in the classes they're in. Um, It all of a sudden opened my eyes to this whole way of looking at language I'd never thought about. So from looking at language as just the average everyday person, you look at it as just a form of communication and there are good forms and bad forms. We have all these ideas. 
But when you look at it like a linguist, you look at it scientifically. What's the science? What's the history behind language? And I saw why we do so many things we do, and it just really opened my eyes to this whole new way of looking at language. And that's really what brought me to being a professor in that area and then ultimately writing the book. Okay. Well, that kind of answers my follow-up question, which was kind of what would make someone get into language studies or linguistics. Linguistics. I can never say that word. It does my head in, but excuse I'll me. I'll just try sociolinguist. <laughs> people really mess, that, that really messes people up. Yeah, I didn't feel brave enough to add that in, but so here we are. <laughs> it kind of gives me a perverse pleasure, but. <laughs> yeah, I know you can sit there and just have that Montgomery Burns look about you. Just exactly. be like, let them suffer in front. But you referred to the fact that your parents had different languages and you even said in like relation to both of them having French language and like, did they speak multiple languages around you? Was it like predominantly English or was it just like dependent on who was in the house or what the circumstance was? You were just being bombarded by all these different languages and as a result, mannerisms. Uh, you know, it's interesting because they actually spoke mainly English to me, but they spoke French to each other, especially when they were arguing. It was always in French. Or when it was discussing something they didn't want me to understand, they would switch to French. So between the two of them, they spoke French. To my brother and I, they spoke English, mainly because my brother's older than I am by a number of years, and he was not born in the United States, and he came when he was young, and he went through what's called a silent period, something we understand now that happens with language acquisition. So if a child is in the process of acquiring language, so they're paying attention to what's going on, sometimes they won't speak at all especially if it's a second language. So they have the first system, they get put in a situation where there's a second system they're exposed to. And it kind of just, the reaction is to absorb rather than produce. Um, and that at that time was not well understood and people thought there's something wrong with him, right? He's not talking. So the teachers would tell my parents there's something wrong with Philip, you know, he's not talk speaking. Um, but he had come with English and Hungarian because his nanny in Montreal was Hungarian. So he had those two languages and that's all he knew. And then all of a sudden English is there and he didn't speak for about a year. So the doctors had told my parents not to speak French to me directly because I would have the same weird reaction. And they didn't understand that actually what he did was very, very normal. It's just a process of language acquisition. We understand that better now, but at the time that caused my parents to mainly speak in English to me. But I was very curious about French because that was when the good, where the good stuff happened. Yeah. The juicy insights. Yes, exactly. Yeah. When I, I only, the only difference I had with my parents was if they opened a statement directed towards me with the word Richard, it meant I was in big trouble. While it was just Richie, it was they needed a favor or dinner was ready. But once I heard my mom or dad say Richard, I knew I was in a lot of trouble. So it's yeah. interesting how that That seems to be a common pattern. That or when people mention the middle name. I have a friend that if their moms mentioned their middle name, like my middle name is Michelle, and if your parents went, Valerie Michelle, that meant you're in trouble. If it was just yeah. Valerie, you're fine. <laughs> yeah, I know. Thankfully, I've been called Richie for the last few years, so I'm doing something right. You're, you're doing something right. Or you're out of the house, and so they're not mad yeah. at you anymore. <laughs> That's probably it. Yeah, probably the latter. And you've somewhat mentioned it briefly there. Like language has changed a lot over the years 
even in the US or just in society or how social media has affected it in some way, shape or form. Like in my lifetime, certain words have been created. Some have then been dismissed as like abusive or offensive. So the question I, I want to ask you is like, does the culture that surrounds you, whether it's a country, a town, or even just planet Earth as a whole, does like culture dictate our language and how we use it? Absolutely. I mean, it's a huge influence. There are two different major influences on the language that forms that you use. One is your cognitive and articulatory systems. Our brains are built in certain ways to do certain things in ways that are more efficient and cognitively sensible, right? So ways that make it easier for your brain to process information. Uh, that's really something we apply to all skills. We see through our eyes, so things are filtered. We hear through our ears, so things are filtered. But we understand through our brains, so things are filtered. So the brain is a big influence on the shape of language. Um, and if you ascribe to Chomsky and theories of innateness, your brain already has a lot of what you'll do as a language speaker pre-wired before you're even born. And really, it's just getting the right buttons pushed when you hear whatever language you speak that turns that on. But even if you take a more functionalist approach that says, all right, we're, it's really not a specific system for language. It's more our brain is shaped in certain ways to process things. And that's how language comes out a certain way more often than others. The brain is important. The other part is the mouth right? How you articulate things. Your mouths are built a certain way. And so air can only move through them a certain way. The tongue can only be positioned certain places. Um, the teeth can't move, right? So those things have an impact on the types of sounds you create. The other thing is articulatorily. Certain sounds are easier to say together than apart. So, you know, for example, uh, mm sound and a ooh sound you have to move the mouth more. And so to get from one sound to the other, if they're adjacent, you're going to have to either move things more rapidly, which will cause uh, under articulation, undershoot, or you have to elongate what you're doing. So it'll cause speech to be longer. So just the sounds themselves can have an influence. So those are just biomechanical issues of speech. Those are unchanging no matter who you are. We all have the same brains. We all have the same mouths. But the big thing is how society interacts with those other constraints. And that's really what shapes language over time. So you might have this basic system that's determined by the brain and the mouth. But that basic system, all the changes that happen to it between you know the proto-language that emerged 50 million years ago or 50,000 years ago to the language we speak now is socially driven. Because otherwise, we have no reason why certain changes happen at certain times and not others. If it was simply a matter of some biomechanical or cognitive reason, every language would look the same. But the fact that they don't means our society is probably one of the deepest influences on the way we speak. And not just being a member of a society, but interacting in that society in certain ways. So being a certain ethnicity, being a certain gender, being a certain age. All of those things are deeply impactful on the language we speak, which is why you were saying you, some words have come into fashion that were never used before, and some words have fallen out of fashion because society has found them offensive now. Those are really rapid changes, and those are all based on 
who's hanging out with who, who's talking to who or whom, if you want to be prescriptivist, yeah. and <laughs> what, what meaning those words have taken on in that context, in that social cultural context. Yeah. Interestingly put. And one thing you talk there about the, the dynamics of the mouth and how we can go about pronouncing certain words. My nickname up until I was about 19 or 20 was witchy because I, I, had, I had huge issues with the letter or, unfortunately, which was a constant cause of concern to me, especially when I had to tell people my name and introduce myself. But thankfully, I, I got through the other side and now can say my ors, thankfully. <laughs> Sometimes I slip up, it, it comes up, but it's nowhere near as bad as it used to be. But with like lisps, the fact that I can say Richie now, but 10 years ago, I would have been saying witchy or if I said, the country turkey i would go turkey and would get abused by all my friends for us but is that uh, an issue with my brain processing that word and the pronunciation or is it quite literally muscle memory that allowed me to be able to pronounce that over time it's probably less in your situation. I mean, there are different cases of speech pathological issues, and some of them are brain-related because a lot of times, for example, if a child, a very young child has problems hearing, they filter the sound in a way that's not typical, and then they, they're recreating an atypical sound rather than the sound as it's produced. So that can be a cognitive issue. But what you're describing is probably a, a biomechanical issue. Our sounds, you're not alone. Our sounds are one of the most difficult sounds in human language. In fact, it's sort of stupid to even have them, which is why many languages move towards reducing ours. So I don't know, you know if you're aware of standard British English, the King's English, I guess it would be now. They, mm. there's, there's no post-vocalic R sounds. So uh, turkey would be tucky. It yeah. wouldn't be in standard British English because it is the natural situation for our sounds to actually atrophy over time or weaken, we call them, because they're very, very articulatorily complex. Um, so it's not just you as a speaker that has problems with them. It is all of us as speakers that tend to reduce them to the point where many languages get rid of them altogether or really strikingly change the way they're pronounced, which is why trilled R's tend to be less common than flap R. So like in English, we just say, right, um, turkey. But in Spanish, it'd be perro, which is a word. I think it means dog. Um, where there's a trilled R's. Well, trilled R's are actually very complex to make articulatorily. So th those often historically, because English probably had a trilled R at one point, they reduce over time. So your R problem is actually a universal problem. It's not yours alone. But what happens is when your language does have them, they're very late acquisition. So no babies have R's. You don't hear babies babbling R sounds. They go ba ba ta ta da da mama, mm. but they don't go ra ra ra. You know, you don't yeah. hear it very often. And um, it's not really till five to seven years old that children start to actually acquire their R's. So if you listen to three and four year olds, they almost always do those uh, weird R less things, and they would say your name Richie as witchy. And same thing with L sounds. Like my name, Valerie, is just the worst name ever for a small child to say. I'm Bawawi. I'm always Bawawi to small children because they can't say those sounds. Um, L's are the same way. L's and R's are both really hard. So what happens, though, is certain children just have less of the muscle control at a certain age that is able to discern 
by listening to it, the correct muscles to make that sound. And then if they miss it at a certain point, it becomes harder and harder to get. So you have to really then start doing some focused effort, which is why we go to speech pathologists a lot of times that help teach a child through just practice. Here's the tongue position. Here's the tongue position. Here's the tongue position. And over time, just habit and practice, it will help you get those R's corrected. Some people do that on their own. When they start to be aware that they haven't correctly acquired that sound, they become very sensitive about it, which it sounds like you were. And then they'll start <laughs> to really work on articulating those. And then when you put conscious effort into that, then you're teaching your body how to make that sound. And over time and practice, you can usually um, get that. Unless there's some biomechanical issues. So certain children might have a cleft palate or a tongue that doesn't quite work as it should, and then it's going to be harder. But most children that have that kind of problem can be um, taught to learn that positioning. But the reason R's happen to be the one that most children get hung up on, uh, so P there are tons of children that have that problem that you had, is because it's such a hard and complex and sort of stupid human sound, frankly. <laughs> Here, here to that. <laughs> Absolutely. Not that I don't like R. R, I like you, but it is a problematic sound. If it makes you feel better, my son is named Cole, C-O-L-E, and he also had problems with R's and L's and is just now as almost 18-year-old you know, really getting them down, and he could not pronounce his name for years, and I felt so bad giving him a name with an L. <laughs> so parents, here's a note to self. Do not give your children names with L's and R's if you want to make sure they don't have problems later on. Yeah, they don't want to be a, a witchy wow and exactly. But no, that is that's interesting and somewhat therapeutic to hear, and that's kind of aiming towards the nearly improvement side of things, where there may be a deficiency or so-called deficiency in how someone would speak and how they can work to hopefully improve it or overcome maybe setbacks in the vo vocal arena, so to speak. But in your book. In some of the early chapters, you speak about how like people would tend to be lazy with their pronouncing it, pr pronunciations, and I don't want this to turn into a tribute to my parents, but they have raised me in such a way that my vocabulary is based uh, along what they they taught me to say and not to say or how to pronounce it. But when I still say the word stunning, I go stunning, and I don't really announce the ing properly and my dad would always just go ing ing stun ing and it's something that i just keep doing i'm aware of it i know how it should be pronounced but i refuse to announce this why has this laziness and i, I see some big politicians celebrity do the same thing especially with like ing or maybe two syllable words that are common why is that? Because it doesn't seem like a society thing because I hear people from England say it. I hear people from Ireland, from the US say it. So is that simply laziness or is there something more than meets the eye? I, I have a sense that this is all going to be heard very clearly by your parents. This, this, this is basically <laughs> for me to talk to your parents. So Richie's mom and dad, <laughs> let me lay it out for you. 
there is actually nothing lazy about that articulation. So in the book, what I talk about is how people have judged those things as lazy articulation. So when people say walking instead of walking or stunning instead of stunning, or when people say things like going to want to have to, those people, those are the things we tend to talk about as lazy speech. And we, we tend to look at people that unfavorably that do it. So, you know, that's, you're not, you're not taking time. You're not being careful. There are two things I'll say to that. Um, one is more generally when we start to call things lazy, we're only looking at the one thing that people do that's more efficient from an articulatory standpoint without thinking of all the things that we do ourselves that are from an articulatory standpoint more efficient and have caused deletion over time. So how many people say often instead of often? Well, often is the standard pronunciation now, but it's because of cognitive, I'm sorry, articulatory efficiency that that T which was there originally up till the 15th century got deleted. When you say like words like walk and talk, if you say walk in, I might criticize you for dropping the G, but in the 15th century, we dropped the L and no one hits us over the head with that, right? So all of mm. those things are about articulatory efficiency. So language is about becoming more efficient over time. We find languages move that direction all the time. There is no reason why a language needs to be difficult. What a language should be is maximally communicative in the minimum of effort, right? That's the point of language is we want to communicate ideas. We don't need to articulate every sound that for weird reasons have been stuck together that aren't articulatorily efficient. So that's one answer to that laziness question. But the specific feature you're talking about, the ING progressive ending. So we call that a progressive ending. So it's usually on verbs when we want to uh, indicate that something's habitually or continuously happening. So I am walking every day to school. I am eating cookies all the time. That sort of displays this habitual action. So it's called a progressive form of the verb. That ing ending that we are so tied to with that g on the end, and this is particularly for your your dad, who I'm sure is lovely mm. in all other respects, but that is actually the wrong ending. It is historically in, not in. So all the people saying in, like walking, stunning, they're actually right from a historical standpoint. The original progressive ending in English was something in Old English that was pronounced inde, i-n-d-e, inde. But what, and then the, and that meant something that, that, it, I mean, it could be used progressively, although it was fairly infrequent, but it was a verb form participle. It was the verbal participle, which is what the ing verbs are today. In Old English, the ing ending, which was pronounced inge, was actually a noun form. It was for nouns, not verbs. And it gave us words that were full nouns, like they didn't have any verbal qualities. They were things like evening. The word evening is an Old English form using the ing, and it's a noun. It doesn't do any verbal things, right? So ing was actually a noun ending in Old English, not a verb ending. Ind was actually the participle ending that we call ing today. What happened is there were sound changes that happened around the 11th century, 11th and 12th century, that decreased the amount of stress that English speakers put on their final syllables, which then caused a lot of those final endings to drop off. So inge and inde became ind and ing, and then the d and the g also dropped off. So it became in and in. So it was speaking and speaking, right? So it was the same ending, whether you were a, talking about a noun or a verb form. So those became conflated by the time of Chaucer, you find him writing 
the I-N-G-E form for what he meant as the I-N-D-E form, right? But he, that people weren't literate. They didn't really know this stuff. So he just wrote what he thought it was. And so this is how we have gotten confused with the original I-N ending and the I-N-G ending is basically the ends, the sounds dropped off. And then it was actually is pronounced I-N, so walk-in, stunning, until about the 19th century. We didn't think ING was correct. And if you, fa if you look at literature from the 18th century, you'll find references to the fact that words like coughing and coffin rhymed. So that meant it was coffin, coffin. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan Swift talks about how in at the royal court, it, you'd prop to properly pronounce it pronounce a word like learning, it would be learning. That was the courtly fashion. So the idea of ING being correct only comes around in 19th century because people started to be literate. And when people started reading, oh, look, it's written ING, which was basically a mistake made in the Middle Ages, right? They started writing the wrong form down. Then they're like, oh, there should be a G on there. So that IN is wrong. When actually the IN form was the original form, not the ING. So you've been right your whole life saying stunning is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I'll take that win. I'll take it. <laughs> Sorry, <take> Dad. You <laughs> <laughs> probably won't be best, please. So I won't send him the link to this episode, boss. No, that, that is certainly interesting to see how it's nearly evolved and in some cases eroded the word itself for better or worse remains to the listener our user i'd say and one of the things like i i've listened to a lot of your work i've read a lot of your work but the big thing and like once i announced that you were coming on the show people were like i know i'm using the word like which we'll get on to later but uh um that's like an absolute massive cause of panic or disdain for my friends for people i know who are teachers or coaches public speakers you name it i used to be terrible at it so my first ever podcast i as an exercise went back and re-listened to it and i said something like 109 as or m's and like my podcast say last week that was over an hour long i said one a in the entire duration i replaced my as with the words so and the word and mm -hmm. as like a bridge to prevent me from going uh um so i'm not saying they're bad things but i have replaced them and what i want to ask you and i know you've talked about how they can sometimes nearly elevate a sentence because if you say go uh and that's how I did that. It nearly refocuses the listener. But the question I kind of want to ask is, like, are these non-precise words or lack of definition words like eh, um, are they important for our general speech or should they be avoided or does it simply depend on the circumstance in which they're being used? Well, first, um, linguists refer to those as filled pauses, and I stuck one in there for you just to illustrate. Uh, so those are filled pauses. Uh, the other things you talked about, so and like and and, those would be more along the discourse marker line. So they're kind of substantively different in terms of how you seem to cognitively produce them. So mm. there is a difference there. But the thing about um and uh, in terms of whether we should eradicate them or not is it really depends on the context. I absolutely agree that when you're giving a public talk, 
when you're making a presentation. And maybe to a lesser degree, but to some degree, when you're doing something like this that's recorded for people to listen to later, it is to your benefit to reduce the ums and uhs, mainly because if you use too many of them, and certainly some people use a lot of them and others use less, it, it seems to be habitual patterns we fall into where some people are heavy ummers and other people are light ummers. But if you're a heavy ummer, it can be distracting to having people listen to you in those contexts. Yeah. What we find though is in conversations, people don't even realize people are doing them. First of all, in conversation, you'll do less of them naturally because they're indicators of cognitive processing. And when you're in a context like this, where we're having deeper conversations about things that are less familiar, and maybe not something that's just easy to access cognitively, we are going to use more because I'm in a rise when a speaker is doing heavy cognitive processing. That's what they are. They're markers of speech planning. The more speech planning you're doing, the more complex a sentence you're going to say, the more difficult and unfamiliar and less common the vocabulary you're going to use, the higher your rate of um and uh naturally, because those things are basically your brain saying, hold on, I'm processing. That's really what it does. So in a casual conversation with a friend over a beer, you're not usually talking about things you have to go deep into your intellectual reaches to access. Uh, you're talking about things that are very familiar to you. You're talking about your friends, your family, your activities, what you did yesterday. Those shouldn't take a lot of cognitive effort to come up with. So you, you naturally won't um and uh in those contexts as much. But even if you do, and sometimes we are talking about things that are difficult or things that are a little more complex in those contexts. People don't notice them. If we ask people to judge what, how many us and ums the speaker used in those contexts, people are very bad at it. In a public speaking context, though, people notice them more because we have expectations for rehearsed and practiced speech. Yes. And the idea when you rehearse and you practice is you should be more familiar, not less familiar with what you're talking about. Therefore, if I understand that I'm in a signal speech planning and I'm in a context where I expect someone to have already done the speech planning, to have practiced and rehearsed and therefore not need to be doing it on the fly, it's going to upset me if I hear them doing these markers of speech planning all the time because my expectation is they should be more prepared than that. And I think that's really why in speech um, contexts like public speaking or giving uh, presentations or doing lectures where we expect someone has rehearsed, we get upset over them using a lot of amina. The other thing to think about with amina is it's not just for a speaker, it's for a listener. So I could just pause silently if I, I needed to do some think, thinking. If I'm doing speech planning, it would certainly make sense that I just take a silent pause. But if I take a silent pause in the middle of my talk, what that does is opens up the floor for a listener to jump in because it's maybe misconstrued as what we call a turn transition point, which means that someone who's listening to me might be waiting to give their insights or their perspective. And, you know, in conversations, we always want to be the one talking, right? That seems to be, we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I had that happen. So they're kind of waiting there to jump in. And if I don't say anything for a minute because I'm thinking... Well, Joe Blow over there is like, oh, wait, it's my turn. I'm jumping in. Yeah. So it, he's misconstruing my silence as a, a turn transition point. So I'm going to really serve, serve a very important purpose to signal to the listener. I'm still talking. It's a, a sort of signal of non-completion. And therefore, back off. Don't jump in my turn. And even more interestingly, um signals I'm taking a longer delay than uh. So we find that when people uh, they're just going to come right back and give you what they were thinking of. 
But when people um, there's a longer delay after the um than after an uh, which means they, they notice and recognize they need more processing time. So it's not just signaling someone is coming back to their turn. It's also signaling how long that person is going to take in their estimation to come back to their turn. So if you ask someone a question and they go, uh, yeah, five or six times, that means they had that fairly accessible. But if they're like, um, probably five or six times, what that tells you is that wasn't as accessible to them and they had to think about it longer. So if someone says an um, they're signaling, I'm more unsure about what I need to come up with here, which is why we take them as markers of uncertainty because they indicate someone's doing thinking about something, which is the other reason when someone's giving a public talk, if they use a lot of um and uh, what they're signaling to a listener is I'm not certain about what's coming up. And that's also why we don't like them when we expect someone to be certain about what they say. Yeah, that certainly rings a few bells, especially when I do, I finish my podcast with quick fire questions and some of them are a bit tricky to just think straight off the bat. And that's when you hear, uh, um, and there's just pauses and I'm looking back at the audio and I just see the long airs and I'm like, I nearly need to get rid of them and just edit them out. But that, that does explain because they're often tricky or else do demand a bit of thought behind them. So that is interesting because some people do have this common maybe misconception that especially for speeches or if it's say a coach telling the team and they're like, uh, so this is what we're going to do. It's a sh- lack of faith, lack of confidence, whatever it may be. So sometimes it's not that it's just deep in thought, which is interesting. It's just processing time, right? They're just indicating the processing time. And it may mean at first they're not certain, mean, simply meaning they're, they, they don't have it on the tip of their tongue, that kind of uncertainty, rather than they don't know it at all. It's really more just a marker of speech planning rather than unknow- unknowingness. But the other benefit, actually, to um and uh that's pretty important from a listener's standpoint is if I'm listening to someone and they're just talking, they don't use um and uh, I seem to remember what they say less well than if they highlighted important information with an um or uh. So when we do experiments where we give people pop quizzes about an hour after we've done an experiment with them, if the experimenter put an um or uh before a certain word in that instructions that they gave them in the previous experiment an hour before, and then we give them a pop quiz on what words they heard in the experimental instructions, if an um or uh preceded it, they tend to remember it better. Okay. So you might be doing your your listeners a favor here and there when you are um before very important information or plot points. Okay. So sponsors now will be like, make sure you say uh or um before exactly. you go in for 30 seconds feel. <laughs> Marketers take notes. Right, right. And it, it got me thinking there that say for instance, if you're a teacher or making a speech or if you're a college student doing a presentation how important because i've read i've read books on speech and even just like how the brain would work and there's been studies where based on the tone of how someone talks like there's a difference if i'm talking like i am now or if i'm like there's a big difference and i'm just crazy energetic people can retain messages a bit more if they're done in a bit more of a unique tone or a more energetic tone so the question I want to ask is, like, how important is it? And again, I know it's kind of tough because it based, it's all based 
upon like what the actual reason for the language is are you giving a talk are you having a conversation are you on a podcast are you having a coffee with your friend etc etc but how important is tone when it comes to language from a listener's point of view so if you're monotone or if you're excitable or if you're screaming like what type of effect does that have on the listener's experience from gathering information and being able to kind of read what that person is really saying because sometimes it's it's easier to tell when the the tone has been changed well i think what you're getting at in sort of those types of studies is we find that listeners pay attention to hyperbole or ways of marking things as as special or extravagant we call it extravagance in linguistics but basically the whole reason we say things such as it was very very good it was so totally awesomely amazing is we're yeah. marking those things as exceptional because we have a tendency as listeners and speakers to fall into these patterns of if it's typical it's not exciting it's not interesting and so if someone is not marking certain aspects of their speech with extravagance in some way, we tend to not pay as much attention to it because no one's highlighting for us. This is important. I think it's sort of a good example. It would be when you're listening to a teacher teaching a subject and they're just going down the list of everything they need to teach without making any kinds of points about this is important. This is going to be on the midterm. You know, when someone does that, you all of a sudden see every student start writing stuff down. I know that's what happens in my classes. I'll be yeah. ta- you know, talking about something. I'm like, okay, guys, this is on the midterm. And everybody's like, oh, okay. Right. <laughs> you know, they're all of a sudden wake Highlighters up. Highlighters out, Hi- panic right, stations Right. Out. So basically what you need to think about as someone who's giving talk is how can I use a highlighter on my speech? Right. What are the important st- things to highlight? Now, the problem is what we find is sometimes people highlight everything. Right. And then that's yeah. no better than if you'd highlight nothing. So what we find is when you use things like varying up your speech tempo, uh, using in speech intensity differently, which means going from louder to softer and softer to louder kinds of changes or variances. When you, you know, speed up at exciting parts and slow down through informational parts, for example, those all add up to signaling to a listener what you think is important. And therefore, they will devote more cognitive resources to it. The same way that um and uh work to highlight certain pieces of information. So as a speaker, when I use um and uh, for example, I'm saying this is a harder thing. This is a deeper thought. This is something more unusual. And that's why it's taking me longer to say it. So as a listener, what we think happens is because the speaker used an um or uh, and we know what uh and um actually signal, which is harder cognitive processing, what it does is when someone starts saying uh or um, it alerts my brain to devote more cognitive resources to unpacking what they're about to say than they were using before, which is probably why I remember it better later, because I've diverted more of my cognitive resources to new information processing. So same thing when you're highlighting things with vocal intensity, when you're highlighting things by speeding up, what it does is it marks for a listener to devote more resources to this new information that you are packaging for me by alerting me to the fact that something exciting or new or interesting is happening here. So I think the idea when you give talks and have conversations is what 
are you doing that helps the listener unpack what you think is important in the things you say? And this is why we hear so many new adverbial intensifiers come into the language. So this is where we get things like that was horrifically awful, where we are using this word that we don't use that often in that context, because what I want to signal to my listener is it was way worse than just normally bad. And yeah. that's, again, a way to highlight it, and which is why literally used non-literally has become very popular. Because <laughs> what I'm trying to do is highlight, it is so freaking awful that I literally almost died, right? I want to I highlight that it, even though it wasn't literal, it feels like it was literal, and therefore it's yeah. something marked. And by using that, it makes you notice what I'm saying more. Not necessarily happily. A lot of people complain about that use, but that's sort of the effective strategy of highlighting things. The thing is, if we do it super consciously, it sounds weird. So if I'm like, okay, what's important in what I'm about to say? I'm going to speed up really fast, right? I mean, yeah. that sounds weird, right? It has to be something that you just sort of teach yourself to do naturally without it being something that you're overthinking. And one way people can really improve public speaking context is by doing what you did, recording themselves and watching it later and finding where are points in the types of styles I use speaking that I might be able to improve listener ability, uh, even though there's nothing wrong with what I was doing, do my ums and uhs happen at such a rate that it's distracting? And if so, then I need to focus on removing them. Do I have a monotone voice and therefore I'm never highlighting the important parts? And then I should know, well, that's something I should work on. And then you can practice giving that same talk with doing it in those points. And what we find is when people start to habitually practice certain speaking traits, it can help them improve change, you know, those speaking traits in their speech. Although as a linguist, all speaking traits are created equal. So there's nothing wrong with using a monotone voice. It's simply a matter of listenership. Yeah, true. And I get my fair share of excitable episodes. Then I've episodes where I'm talking to someone from Australia and it's five in the morning. So I'm very tired and it's, <laughs> it's a bit of a disaster. So I, I completely get what you're, you're saying when it comes to the tone, tonality of a voice and also the excessive use of the word literally. Like I was, I was stuck in an airport two days ago and seven, eight hour flight delays and talking to my friends on different kind of phone groups i was just like it literally is the biggest fiasco ever and like it obviously wasn't but that's kind of the the english i was using at that particular time so it kind of makes sense that you would say it's to nearly stand out from the crowd and get people's right. attention it's, it's, show, it's trying to be sort of a indicator of extravagance of how the degree to which this is bad is more than normally bad and, and that's how words take meaning over time. So the word very, which we use to mean what you were intending there, which is extremely, when you say it's literally the worst thing ever, you're basically saying it's extreme. So when I say I'm very happy, what I mean by that is I'm extremely happy. Well, very didn't mean extremely uh, three, 400 years ago. What very meant was true or actual, the very same thing that literal means. So literal means it's true or actual. Very originally meant true or actual and over time has semantically bleached so that now to us it mainly means extremely but its original meaning was very similar to literal and it just over time got used so much in that context to mark extravagance that that's really the only meaning we ever use it for today unless i say something like on this very spot he stood 
where there it means on this very true or actual. That's one of the remnant meanings of, of its original meaning. So we think it's horrible when it happens in our lifetime. So literally bothers a lot of people, but very bothers very few people. And that's because what happened to very this semantic bleaching that literally is undergoing right now that happened 300 years ago by the 17th century we find very used now as just extremely as a degree word instead of its original meaning so none of us were alive back then doesn't bug us but literally is going through that exact same process today and that really bugs us so it's really a matter of perspective yeah and i was i was in the states in august i went to california and florida and I will get on to the Irish version of this, but you cannot help but overhear some guys or especially girls. They'd be like, I was literally stuck in traffic all day and using it, that terminology into that effect. But another L word is like, and you've spoken a lot about this in a lot of detail. The Irish version of like is very flexible. So to give you two examples in like the west of i even said it there in the west of ireland you would have farmers people in really rural parts they'd be like how are you doing today valerie like that's kind of how they'd speak and then the more posh or rich type people who would be in the capital of dublin they would say like at the end of the sentence they'd be like what are you doing today like they would just use it off the cuff and it'd become a, a posh terminology. We'd be slagged saying, all oh, like, like, how are we? What, like, how does that, I know you've talked about it nearly like the evolution and stuff like that, but like has so many different meanings. I like music. I would like it if you'd go upstairs and clean your room, et cetera, et cetera. But how does such a simple four letter word have so many variables attached to it in all corners of planet Earth, including right. it's even a, America. Like is an amazing word. I think if I had to pick one word that best exemplified language evolution, it would be like, because you're absolutely right. It has so many meanings and it's so multifunctional and it's crazy how powerful and extensive like is. I also want to unpack your Irish like a little more because that's fascinating to me. And I think what you will find if we look deep, deep, deep into the historical evolution of the like that we use today as a discourse marker, the one that people tend not to like, um, mm. it is actually probably Irish in origin. Or oh. it certainly it certainly is a British form, not an American form. So even though people think of it as an American Valley Girl innovation, it is far from that. The Valley Girl connotation just came along with Moon Unit Zappa, who popularized its use in a song. And yes, Valley Girls were using it, but they're just sort of the imitators, not the inventors in that case. It, re it re definitely comes from working class, probably rural, most likely, um, British or Irish innovation. I say Irish because even though most of the data we have that looks back 300 years and finds like in some documents back then are British. So there are trial transcripts and things like that. But if you look at the pervasiveness of modern like, you find it really high rates in Irish speech and in rural, rural areas of Ireland, which suggests that maybe that is where like started and that use got misinterpreted over time as a discourse marker rather than as some sort of adverbial or adjectival use, which is, I think, how it's still used in areas of, of Ireland. But 
back to your original question of how one word becomes so evolutionarily diverse, we start in maybe the 1200s, roughly. And we obviously, a written records follow spoken language, but we find our first references to the verb-like, um, which was something more like lichian, in the 12th century uh, and maybe 13th century. That seems to have been first. And then we start getting adjectival uses, swan-like, where probably the verb was attached. So what like means is um, I enjoy, right? It's, it's pleasant. Then when we start to say something is adjectivally like, it starts to have this idea of approximation or similarity. Yeah. So if someone's swan-like, um, it's, it's like a swan, you know, something similar to a swan. So then we get in the 15th century starting to get that, that idea of similarity used in a different place in the sentence. So the idea is there originally, but it just starts moving around the sentence in terms of where you put it to express that similarity. So then you get things like a preposition in a simile. Her eyes were like the sky. So that again is like, she has sky-like eyes becomes like the sky, right? So it's just shifting in how it's used slightly, but the meaning is still similar to our approximation. Mm. And then you get conjunction uses where it connects two phrases, two sentences to say they're similar. He rides a bike like he was a bat out of hell, right? Where it, what it's saying is the bike riding is similar to this other sentence. Again, similarity, similarity. And then I say, he's like five or six. That's where it starts to be used in more of this approximator kind of yeah. discourse sort of way that again express approximation or similarity so i think what we have to realize is the meaning of like in most cases not the enjoyment like but the similar like has been consistent for centuries what's changed is the point of the sentence we put it in right and there's always syntactic flexibility we move things around quite often especially when it comes to adjectival or adverbial kinds of things because they're syntactically detachable, meaning that adverbs and adjectives kind of move around a sentence more than things like verbs do. Uh, so it's just this idea of approximation becomes more salient than the idea of enjoyment. So you have these two original meanings. One becomes very useful to us. I express similarity, then similarity. And we don't find, like in early texts in the 1300s and 1400s, we don't find approximation-like. We find only similar-like. Like X is similar to Y. Then what we find around the 1600s is I'm approximating that X is similar to Y. Right, this sense of this is an approximation, a subjective approximation that doesn't exist early on. That's something that seems to be added because of the types of things people used it for uh, when they were giving you a subjective opinion. That's when we start to see it really become a discourse marker. So it just becomes increasingly subjective from this objective form. So a preposition is fairly objective. Her eyes are like the sky. Well, I mean, that's subjective because I'm saying what the sky is, but sky is blue, eyes are blue, boom, right? Yeah. So that you can see the connection. But if you say he's like a brother to me, like he's a brother to me, that's my personal subjective opinion about that relationship. It's not as obvious as the connection of eyes to blue. Does that make sense? Yeah. So there's more no, of an approximation. Does. And so the more we get subjective approx approximation indicated by like, the more available it becomes to be used as all these other things that it's used as, which is like a quotative verb. So if I say something such as, 
I was like, I don't think I want to go. And he was like, yes, you better. Right. <laughs> That's where that like is used as a quotative. Those are all saying this is an approximation of what he said. And so that sense of approximation evades everything or emotes sort of from those words. And that's how it gets to be used so widely in so many different forms, because this sense that someone's trying to get across is approximation. The way they use it varies. And so you start using it in multifunctional circumstances, but it all means the same thing, which is approximation. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Well explained, don't worry. But tell me about the Irish like a little more. I want to hear more because I know that a lot of Americans noticed in the movie with Colin Farrell uh, that just came out. I think it's the oh, Banshees. Of, the Banshees in- of Inishmore. Yeah, that there was a lot of likes in that movie, yeah. right? Sort of rural Irish like, and I think a lot of Americans were surprised by that. But I think that's actually a very old form of like. So can you tell me a little more about the Irish like? It's nearly just a a word used when they it's nearly when they they say something about you or something they're reacting to what you're doing so say for instance i was burning a sheet of paper in a back garden my mother if she was from rural ireland would come out and be like richie what are you doing like and they would just say like for the sense of like for the sake of it i should say and the expression of like what do you like is a huge one in Ireland. Just like, ah, oh, what do you like if you do something, maybe misbehave? Oh, and, I see. So not really like asking you what you, you like, but just sort of what are you doing? What the hell are you doing? Kind yeah. Of. And okay. then, as I said, for the wealthy part of Dublin, the capital of Ireland, a lot of South Dublin are considered the rich, entitled class, and they would be like talking saying, I'm trying to think of a right ter- term here without making a fool out of myself, but they'd be like, what would they say? They would say, I'm trying to think. So it's different though than the like in the rural areas or similar? Slightly similar, but just not said in the same pitch or tone. Rural Ireland, it's much drawn out the like. It's like, like, it's pronounced a little bit different. And then the posh version is like, it's like I see. so. It was we went on holiday like that's how people would talk. And it might be used more to describe your own things versus a reaction to something someone else is doing. Is that yeah sort of that exactly? Okay. Yeah, it would just Very slide in common. Because there's one theory when we look at how the theory of how did like get detached from the syntax. So how did like start becoming something that you could delete and the sentence would still be the same versus something. If I say he has eyes like the sky, he has eyes, the sky, right? Wouldn't make sense. I can't delete it in that context. But if I say, what are you doing? Like I can delete that. And what are you doing? Still makes sense. So, right. So how did it become detached from the syntax? One theory is that that form of like that you're describing where it was attached to the end of sentences became then misinterpreted as sort of the onset of a next sentence. So what are you doing like? You're a fool. Like you're a fool becomes misanalyzed as the like starts it because you know like is often used at the beginning of sentences. And so one theory of how that happened was that it was actually like the Irish like that when people were continuing with the next sentence somehow people that listen misinterpret that instead of at the end of the past sentence as being the beginning of the next sentence. And that's how it started to become a discourse marker. 
Yeah, it's so, it is truly fascinating. Very interesting. It is. Lots of we could talk about like all day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But well explained, giving us the the history and the modern version of how like is so prominent and a bit more closer to home is acronyms. I think that's how you pronounce it. I, I feel like I'm at a, an oral exam. Uh, <laughs> no, no, now. no. I feel under right. pressure here. <laughs> no pressure, no pressure. In the, the school I used to work, I, I went to the school and then I was a coach in the school and like a teacher for a year. Acronyms are so heavily used now in the last like four, five, six years. And an example would be AORS, which stands for, and rightly so. So someone would say, oh yeah, and then I had a few drinks on Friday and someone would go AORS, like, and rightly so. A term I came up with was AOTP, which stands for all over the place. And it was to emphasize how all over the place a certain element of the team's performance was. I was like, this is AOTP. And everyone was like, what, what does that mean? And I was like, <laughs> all over the place. So there's loads of these different terms that have now sprung up in the locality. And a lot of my friends use it. Students 10 years, 15 years younger than me use it. Even at a wedding recently, they had a card at each table that had these acronyms and what they actually meant for normal people. So oh, I love that. Is, is that referring back to being able to nearly enhance your speech where I can say AOTP as opposed to all over the place? Is it an element of laziness? Is it social surroundings? Like, how does something like that bizarre find itself in a community and being used in day-to-day life? Well, acronyms, and you did say that right, which is sort of where you take the first letter of a grouping of words and mm. put that together as the new words. Those have been around for quite a while because a lot of times to abbreviate the names of organizations, for example, we would use those, right? Just to make it simpler to say, because first of all, it's easier to remember. Second of all, it's a lot more efficient to say than having to, you know, like NATO is a great example. NATO has been around for a while. NATO yeah. is, the, I think, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And who wants hey, to walk around no saying one wants to say the that. North Atlantic <laughs> Treaty Organization? It just does, it sound, doesn't roll off the tongue. NATO no. does. So this is a process that has been happening for a long time. And what's interesting is it's a process that often happened historically in organizational institutional contexts, right? So when you had the name of something and you wanted to make it more memorable or easier to say. What I think has really inspired it to be in conversational speech, like you're talking about, and really become very popular because I have teenagers and they are always saying things like that to each other, um, and especially texting them, is the advent of computer-mediated com communication and texting. And when that started to happen, there were restrictions on how many characters you could have. So you couldn't say North Atlantic Treaty Organization in a text because you wouldn't have mm. enough characters. So people started to abbreviate things, those abbreviations became widely used, and then they became kind of trendy and hip and indicated kind of, I know what I'm doing, I'm young, I'm, I'm, I've got this, I'm culturally yeah. aware. And then once something like that gets imbued with some sort of social quality, like, you know, being trendy or hip or cool uh, or novel, then it becomes attractive to a lot more people and used more widely. So, you know, it's sort of... Um, the young, you know, cool kid in school uses something a certain way. Well, then everybody wants to use it that way. 
I think that's what happened with acronyms. They've been around for a long time, but they weren't cool till fairly recently. And that's partially because of their use in texting language. And when texting came along, it was kind of young and novel, and it definitely separated youth culture from older people. And um, it also made you feel like you're kind of in the know or in the click to use those expressions. And that made those types of things become popular more generally. And then it's also fun. It's fun to have this coded in language, right? Because if you and I are talking and we both have this shared knowledge that allows me to unpack, what was the one you said that was all over the place? AOTP. AOTP. So you and I are saying, oh, God, that was so AOTP. Well, the person at the table next to us doesn't know what the hell we're talking about. That's sort of what makes it fun. Part of what makes it fun is that I know, you know, we're in this clique together that knows, but that asshole over there doesn't know. (laughs) Right. And so that makes me feel good because we can talk about them and talk about things without them knowing. So that actually adds this extra mystery and fun to it, especially in youth culture that really becomes makes it cool when someone else doesn't know what you're doing. So all these things add up to making that kind of stylistic choice very popular. Um, and then some, some of them get widely used and they become no, known to everybody like LOL. Or um, I had someone the other day write in a tweet because I was on a podcast that's fairly well known. Uh, they just wrote ILY. And I was like, what the hell is ILY? But I asked my daughter and she knew, she was like, I love you, mom. That's what it means. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, well, now I know. Because she, of course, does uses those as well, that it's very popular in her group. I will say I don't tend to talk to my friends in a lot of acronyms. So I think it is a partially age-related thing. But uh, when you start to develop any kind of coded community language like that, it really becomes a signal of in-group membership. And so I think, you know, that's what you're seeing at that wedding, this idea that you had these acronyms and then that for those not in the know, it becomes a point of conscious notice in that society. Like, look, these are fun things that we do and not everybody's in on the joke. And that's what makes it even more popular. Okay, so it's nearly like a culture entry point for some people, yeah, a gateway. Yeah, yeah, and it also makes sense, right? You don't want to say the full phrase. It's not lazy. It, again, there's nothing in speech we do that's lazy because the point of speech is not to have the longest sentences ever, right? Yeah. No, when, when it wasn't anybody ever said, okay, we're talking. It doesn't really matter what we say or who we're talking to or what our point is. What matters is that we actually talk for the longest amount of time and use the most words. I mean, that's just bullshit. It's ridiculous. The point of language is let's communicate not only the information that I want to communicate, but our relationship, how we feel about each other, what kind of groups we're members of, who we are socially. That's the point of talk. And what you're talking about with those acronyms, it does it all at once. It's communicating information, but it's also communicating that we're members of the same tribe, so to speak, that gets what those acronyms mean. And it also calls into everybody who may not even know what those acronyms acronyms mean, but know what the importance of those acronyms is to that community. So they're in on the joke as well. So it really inculcates a lot of socio-emotionally, culturally relevant information in one fell swoop. So there's nothing lazy about it. There's It's simply really innovative and creative. And it, exactly that, it, it focuses attention on what you're saying because you're using something new and novel. Okay. Well, that's good See, to you're know. See, fe- you're feeling pretty good after our conversation, aren't you? Yeah. Not <laughs> as like, doubtful. I'm like, you're novel, right? Everybody <laughs> else has our problems, right? You're in yeah. is correct. I, I think I'm, I'm like the Richie fan here. <laughs> it has been somewhat therapeutic, so I do thank you for that, Valerie. And 
Yeah, just one of one of the last things I want to ask you about, and this is more so from the listeners. And I've been fortunate enough to, as I said, I was a teacher, did coaching, do this podcast. I've done some storytelling events where I've, and then like some of my day-to-day jobs working for tech companies involves me speaking to a lot of people, doing presentations, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not as daunted to public speaking as the famous saying is like public speaking is the majority of people's biggest fear in the world. Is there any maybe science or any opinions you've come up with or concluded with to help people who struggle with public speaking, not so much perform, but not allow nerves affect them? Or if so, like what actual effects are these nerves having on them speak? Because I have friends who say once they get in front of a group of 30 people at work, they can't speak. They have to like clear their throat every three seconds when once they're one-on-one, they don't have to clear their throat. I have other people who then start saying, eh, um, I have other people then who just start sweating and panicking. Is there any science behind the effect nerves have on how we so much our output of our language? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the science is, you know, anxiety does tend to increase speech errors. Now, interestingly, um and uh are not necessarily tied to anxiety. Uh, when there was a study done in a long time ago in, I think it was the 1960s or so by a psychologist who looked at how speech errors, things like false starts, restarts, um, slips of the tongue and um and uh related to anxiety and what he found is those other ones, those other things like false starts, starting over, uh, slips of the tongue, misspeaking, that those actually increased the more anxious people were, but um and uh didn't. So they seem to be indicating something else. So they're more about cognitive processing. But regardless, some people might fall back on sort of nervous habits when they get in front of a group. And I will say a lot of people tell me that that makes them very nervous to talk in front of people. It's this idea of public performance, I think, uh, feeling like you're being judged, all those things are really hard. One thing I think is just as listeners, we need to cut people slack. I mean, we're not really supported sometimes in the way that we listen to people. We don't let people finish. We cut people off. We get annoyed when people are struggling to get out what they say. And so that's really on listeners because if you're the one in the hot seat, you want people to be more understanding and empathetic. So part of our jobs as listeners is to be supportive. And if you give people support by giving them eye contacting, by nodding, by giving them encouragement to speak and letting them have the freedom. So in a meeting, not making people think think that if they don't speak right away, someone else is going to steal their turn, those kinds of things, that can help, help more generally with the atmosphere of reducing anxiety for people in your organization. But as a person that is afraid to do public speaking yourself, so if that someone is in that position, my best advice is we tend to be more nervous when we're not absolutely sure what we're going to say when we haven't formulated it. And what I have found to be the most effective for people that struggle with that is if they think they're going to have something to say about a meeting before they raise their hand and start talking before they're, they're the one on the hot seat, if they can think through the sentence, because a lot of times people think through the idea, but not think through the sentence. Mm. And if you're worried about speaking, thinking through the sentence is probably as important as thinking through the thought, if that makes sense. So I might have a feeling like I'm going to talk about this topic, but what that doesn't do is give you the words to talk about that topic. If you think I want to say something here, I want to talk about this topic. 
And what I'm going to say about it is, I feel that this is not the best approach because of X. All right, whatever. Yeah. Come up with a sentence. Give yourself the moment to not only have the idea of having a thought that you want to share, but have the language to have that thought. So as I said before, we find this with amana. The more I've rehearsed what I'm going to say and practice, the better it'll come out in terms of reducing my amana. Uh, same thing with other aspects of nerves. Part of the problem is formulating what you're going to talk because you're doing several things complex at once. You have divided cognitive attention. So you're trying to help yourself deal with the anxiety of public speaking and you're dealing with the situational context and you're processing it. Like, here I am, everybody's looking at me, I have to talk, I have to get this out, here's the idea you know, I'm trying to have. So that's one part of your brain's working on. The other part of your brain is like, I have to actually structure a syntactic structure here. I have to say a sentence. So whenever we have divided attention, we're, we're not as effective, right? So if you can help yourself not have as much divided attention by pre-thinking the sentence you're going to say, it should help you be a little more effective in getting that, that message across. So don't just think the idea, think the words. Okay, good advice. And yeah, no, that, that more or less sums up the formality of the podcast. I do have these infamous quick fire questions that I do need to ask you before right. I let you go. Let's, enjoy the rest of your day. Let's have at it. Let's do it. And I'll know that if there is any uh, or ums, I've, I've asked the right questions, hopefully. But uh, I'll fire. I'm now going to have to watch myself. Yeah, I, I will fire away and we'll see how we get on. So question one is your favorite film of all time. Oh, my favorite film of all time. I have to say one of my favorites, and I think it's just the time of my life, is uh, When Harry Met Sally. I still can't not watch that movie without dying laughing just because when it came out where I was in my life, uh, you know, I was very young and I just uh, saw that with someone who I had met several times through my life. So it seems very similar. And I, I still love that movie. I can watch it endlessly. So, you know, it's it's probably not one of the most brilliant movies ever made. But for me, I think it. I would have to say it's one of the movies I watch most often. Okay. Yeah, it's a popular classic. I think everyone knows knows that film or at least yeah, seen knows that clips. Film. Yeah. So this is an Irish saying question, but we, I might have to give you context, but... Probably. <laughs> so which of these Irish sayings is the best or most pleasant to you? So there's three. First one is story horse. Second one is what's the crack? And the last one is on the tear. I'll give you... Uh, I'll give you... <laughs> okay, I need context. Yeah. Story horse basically is how are you? Or what did you get up to today? So you might see your friend and be like, story horse. It's to say like, how are you? What are you up to? What's the crack is pretty much the exact same. It's what's the story? What are you up to? What are you doing today? You'll you'll rather than say hello, you'll be like, what's the crack or story horse? And then the last one on the tear is going out and drinking. It was like, oh, Richie was out on Friday and he was on the tear, which basically means he was he was going heavy on the drinking or partying. So now with the context oh my gosh so which one is more relevant to me no or that just I like that, that you like so you've got story horse what's the crack I, I, the think, I, I feel like what's the crack i love that one if it, i can see how that would just slip off the tongue what's the crack dude yeah i like it i think i'm going they're all good uh, uh but i and on the terror i've heard that it's similar on a rampage yeah. is sort of what we might say i was out and i was on a rampage yeah. that's similar in the united states 
Uh, that one's less exciting to me, but uh, I like What's the Crack. Story Horse is good, too. It's a toss-up, but I'd say What's the yeah. Crack. And the good thing about what... I'm going to have to start using that. Yeah, the good thing about <laughs> in Ireland, if you say What's the Crack, when you describe a night out or uh, a concert, you will say, it was great crack. So it would be like, oh, how was that ACDC concert? And you're like, oh, it was incredible crack. So it's... Now, do you know, have any idea where the word crack, like the origin of that from what... what... <sighs> I'm sure I'm sure Google will have the answer for you, but it's it's still prominent. Everyone in every county in Ireland will use us and know exactly what you mean when you say it. But yeah. I'm wondering if it's related to the drug crack. No, like, it's it's spelled there was a time it's now? spelled C or A I C. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, okay. I'll have to do some research. Now I'm curious. Yeah, okay. Now that it's my favorite expression, I have to know <laughs> yeah. more about it. <laughs> exactly. And next one is, what do you think is the greatest speech of all time? Oh, well, it has to be Martin Luther King, I Have a Dream. Yeah, that's, uh, I can't really debate that. I mean, that's off the top. I didn't even need to um or uh there. Yeah. Next one is, what is your go-to coffee order? I am an Americano drinker. Okay, no nonsense. I don't do fancy coffee. I'm, I'm no nonsense. I do like, I will admit, a, thai, a, a, a tea latte every once in a while. A chai tea latte. I don't know if you've had those. I haven't had it. I, 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 I just, I'm a simplistic guy when it comes to coffee. It's either Americano or a latte or an iced latte. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, I mean, Americano is my go-to order. I'd say nine times out of ten. But if I'm trying to change it up, Usually if I'm with my daughter and her friends who have every fancy drink known yeah. to man, it's like if it's more expensive, they're going to order it. That's <laughs> how it works with them. <laughs> I will do a, a, a chai tea latte every once in a while, but generally I'm an Americano kind of gal. Okay, fair enough. And second last one, this is going to be interesting because I've had a few males on yeah. recently and they've all picked the exact same answer to this, but with a, okay, a based off my mother's performance i think it may differ or it might be the same but anyway what is the worst house chore basically cleaning the dishes hoovering the house or changing the bed sheets oh changing the bed sheets yeah it's it's universal like it really it doesn't matter about age gender backgrounds they suck. <laughs> is that is that what everybody yeah, else said absolutely to absolutely everyone i oh. think one person said hoovering the house because they would get real sweaty doing it so yeah. but changing the beds i actually i actually hoovered my house yesterday and it wasn't too horrible but i dread the sheets i hate it i really i hate it and then yeah, what i dread more than making the bed is folding those stupid sheets when they come out of the dryer i cannot fold a sheet to save my life yeah, especially the one that goes on the mattress yeah. you know that i forgot what they're called but oh i hate yeah. it i hate that so yes you picked a hot button for me yeah <laughs> i i can see that and it was only i only got back from italy two nights ago and i got back to the house and I brought some clothes from the family house to where I'm living now. And I forgot that I took off the bed sheets and cleaned everything before I left on holidays. So I get back at half two in the morning and I open the door and I'm like, oh no, I have to do this at half two in the morning when my housemates are all asleep. And it was a, it took about 25 minutes. It was absolute torture. But, yeah. yeah, it is torture. I'm with you. That would suck. <laughs> yeah. And Last question is, if you could ask yourself one question that I haven't asked you today, what would it be? Where to buy my book? Yeah, well, <laughs> the thing was, just underneath this, I was going to ask, I was like, 
And Valerie, where's the best place to find your work or where's the best place to search? <laughs> great minds, great minds. Um, well, you can buy it anywhere books are sold. So I think probably in uh, Ireland, it would be Amazon. It's on Amazon, where yeah. You get it from. Yeah, but um, yeah, so that's where you buy my book. But otherwise, questions I think that you haven't asked me. You've done pretty, pretty well, but maybe you haven't asked me why I, I wrote this particular book. That would be the only question. Like what drove me to write a book for a general audience? Because I'm an academic and I've written a ton of books and articles that yeah. deal with theoretical issues that no one would want to read. Like never would you ever want to read any of my other books because they are torturous if you're not an academic. But what inspired me to write this book, uh, I think is one question you didn't ask me. Well, since you've asked yourself that, you have to give a quick, quick <laughs> answer before I let you go. Because whenever I would give talks about all my academic stuff in public context, even though I would make it so it was accessible to an audience, people would politely listen. And then they come up and say, oh, that was interesting. But why do people say like all the time? I hate it when people do that. <laughs> or they say like, God, could you please tell people to stop saying literally, non-literally? Like I had some superpowers that I could just be like, I'm, I'm no one else is ever allowed to use literally, non-literally. So I, I just thought it was funny that everybody asked me about the same like five or six things and that I had given them all the tools for answering that question when I was giving my talk. So I talked about why language changes, how things we don't like come about through natural organic processes, you know, all this stuff I'd already talked about, but they couldn't see how it applied to yeah. the things that they hated. And so I decided, well, let me write a book that spells it out. So I never have to tell anybody at the end of a talk that answer again. And that was why I wrote the book. There you go. There you go. <laughs> but yeah, no, that, that wraps it up, Valerie. And for any of the listeners as well, I'll attach your website, your social media channel. So if anyone wants to follow you or read more about your work, absolutely do that. And then, as we said, it's on Amazon Ireland. If people want to get that book, absolutely do. And yeah, I just want to thank you for coming on. It's It's been a few weeks in the making, but I hope the listeners enjoy it. And yeah, thank you for doing the deep dive into why we talk and how lisps are not that bad and how acronyms are not that uncommon when used in certain cultures. So I, I want to thank you for being a informative guest and then also somewhat of a therapist for the last, you know, 70, 75 <laughs> minutes or so. But no, seriously, Valerie, thanks for coming on and sharing your story. Absolutely. And now I have a new expression. I'm going to go ask my kids what the crack is. Yeah. And then you've got the upper hand. <laughs> then you're just like, Completely. They're going to look at me like, what? And then turn around and walk off. That's pretty much what I'm going to get. But I'm going to try it out. I'll let you know how it goes. Please do. Please do. Well, listen, take care, Valerie. You too. Thanks, Richie.